God desires for his people to be a house of prayer and worship. The tabernacle of David with day and night prayer and worship is being restored in the church which will see an ingathering of souls into the kingdom of God. Let's be a house of prayer. Ephesians chapter 6 where Paul talks to us about the armor of God and uh, encouraging us to put on the full armor of God. And as part of that armor that he, he tells us to wear on and keep on, he tells us in verse 17 of Ephesians 6, Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Take the sword of the Spirit. Meaning this is a, a, wep a weapon that God's given to us. It's from the Holy Spirit. We've got to take it. We've got to use it. Take the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Now, the way we use the sword is by speaking that word. Because you see later in the book of Revelation that even the Lord Jesus, out of his mouth goes a double-edged sword. The word he speaks is a double-edged sword. And that's why we encourage all of us to make our declaration, say the word, say what God says, because that is how you and I use the sword of the Spirit in our spiritual warfare, in our battle against the enemy, right? So when we stand up and make a declaration, it's not some part of the service thing you have to do and check it off, next item. <laughs> it's not that. It's us learning, training ourselves to speak the word, declare what God has said about us so that we can use it as a weapon against the enemy. Amen? Let's stand to our feet and make a declaration. Let's use the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, as we make our declaration in alignment to the Word. So please lift your Bible high up in there. Say this out loud, bold, and strong with me. This is God's Word. This is God speaking to me. I am who God says I am. I can do what God says I can do. I will become everything God has promised. I'm saved, healed, delivered, redeemed. I'm blessed, victorious, prosperous, triumphant. I'm a minister of God, a servant of Christ, and a channel of His blessing to many people. I receive His word. I believe his word, and I live by his word. Christ is my master, and to him I am in absolute surrender. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. May be seated, please. Before we get into the word, I just want us to turn to a verse of scripture in the 14th chapter of Proverbs. It's not the message for this morning, but uh, I just want to bring our attention to our verse in Proverbs 14, and then we'll get into the message for this morning. Proverbs chapter 14, I want us to look at verse number 4, please. It says, Where no oxen are, the trough is clean. But much increase comes by the strength of an ox. Where there's no oxen, 
got a really nice, clean stable. Nothing to worry about. Doesn't smell bad. Doesn't look bad. The only problem is there are no oxen in it. But the Bible says much increase comes to the strength of an ox. So you've got to have some ox there. It's going to smell a little bad because they do their job there. <laughs> it's going to be a little messy because you're going to bring in their food and water and all those things. But much increase comes when you have some oxen. What's the point? That growth often is messy. Amen? You don't agree or you do? <laughs> growth is messy, right? Growth requires strength. You need those oxen there. And growth requires work. God be willing to work. If you don't have any ox, you can't have any increase. Right? So look at your neighbor and say, you're a good ox. What am I saying? You know, in a church, if we are to grow, you've got to be willing to have a little mess around. Amen? You've got to have, be willing to get in those strong oxen that people bring in. God's bringing in all the strong oxen and it's getting us ready for growth. But it's also going to require some work. Amen? Revival, a move of God, a work of God is always messy. Because he's dealing with us and he's working in us and through us. It's always messy. It's never clean and comfortable. And, but keep this in mind. As we journey with God, things will be messy. Things are not always going to be clean and smelling good, looking good all the time. But hey, there's increase. There's increase. God's doing things. Amen? All right. The last few Sundays we've been talking about pictures of the church and uh, this is the third message in this series on pictures of the church. We began by reminding us that the Lord Jesus is building his church. He said, I will build my church. So he's building it. Amen? The church is not a human organization. It's not a denomination. It's not, a man. It's not an idea of a man. The church is God's idea. It's something God is doing. Are you happy to be part of something God's doing? Even if it's messy? Amen? It's, 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 it's His idea. The church is God's idea. He is building. He's working in the lives of people. He's bringing us together. He's building His church. And uh, uh, the New Testament uses different pictures to convey to us what the church would be like. Uh, we listed some of these. We talked about the church being a body. We talked about the church being the household of God or the family of God. The church being the pillar or the ground or the upholder of truth. The church being the temple of God, being a dwelling place of God, a habitation of God. The church being a house of prayer. The church being Zion, the assembly of ga or the gathering of God's people. The church being the bride which we talked about last Sunday and which is brought to us uh, through song this morning. The church being the candlestick, 
the church being the wine, part of the wine, the branches on the wine, the church being an army. Two key points we wish to emphasize, and I just remind us about that. First of all is that church is primarily about our relation with him, with the head. If you're not related to the head, the church is dead. You, know, you can have a good body, looks good, dress it up in suit, put on the tie, good smell, everything. But without the head, it's dead. It's lifeless. Can't do anything. So us as individuals and us collectively, if you're not rightly connected to the head, Jesus Christ, the church is dead. The second thing we wish to emphasize was that out of our relationship with him, we then minister to one another and to the world. Amen? That's what makes us different. When we come together and relate to one another, we relate because of him, we relate through him, out of that relationship that we have with Jesus Christ. Otherwise, if we just relate to one another just because, you know, uh, of some social reason or anything, we're just another club just gathering together. Or when you relate to each other out of our relationship with him, that's what makes us the church. And everything that we do in the world, we do it out of our relationship with him. Out of that comes our ministry, the things we do out in the world. Last Sunday we looked and we studied in depth about the body, about the bride of Christ. The fact that God in both the Old and the New Testaments refers to him as the bridegroom and he refers to his people as the bride. And he wishes to use that picture to describe to us the relationship that we, his people, have with him. As the bride relates to the groom. We, his people, relate to him. This morning, I want us to look at another picture in depth, which is the fact that the church is a house of prayer. A house of prayer and worship. We are called to be a people of prayer and worship. A house, meaning not necessarily the building, but us as individuals. We are called to be a people of prayer and worship. Both as individuals and collectively. In both the Testaments, in both the Old and the New, God calls His people as priests. As priests. For instance, if you look in the book of Exodus, the 19th chapter, Verses 3 to 6, God is speaking to Moses. He's just brought his people out of Egypt. They're on their journey to the promised land. God speaks to Moses and says, And Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, I tell the children of Israel, You've seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. So God is saying, you know, my people, you are a special treasure above all everyone else and about everything else that's in the earth. You are a special treasure to me. God treasures you and me. And then he says, you are a kingdom of priests. 
or like the New Testament says, we are kings and priests unto God. Amen? Peter reiterates this to the New Testament church in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 5. He says, you also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house. So this house we're talking about is not a natural house, but it's a spiritual house. A holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So he's saying, we are a spiritual house. We're offering up to God spiritual sacrifices. Amen? And we are holy priests unto God. God perceives you and me as kings and priests. That's a function given to every believer. Every believer is a king and a priest. Say this with me. I'm a king and a priest. We are kings and priests. And this is a function God's given to you and me. He says, I'm calling you kings and priests. As kings, we represent his kingdom. We bring heaven here on earth. As priests, we take the matters of earth before his throne. We do both, kings and priests. You are a king. You are a priest. It's a function. It's a calling for each one of us as believers. We are his people, the church. We are a nation of priests, a royal priesthood. In the Old Testament, once God gave Moses instructions about the tabernacle, meaning about a physical house where people will come to worship him. Remember the New Testament, we are a spiritual house, offering up spiritual sacrifices. But in the Old Testament, it was a literal physical house, but there was a message in all of that. Part of this tabernacle there was an altar of sacrifice called the brazen altar. An altar where sacrifices would be made. Remember, in the New Testament, we are called to offer up spiritual sacrifices. Sacrifice of praise, prayer, worship. That's what we're called to offer. But in the Old Testament, on the brazen altar, they will bring sacrifices. And for that altar, God gave specific instructions. In the sixth chapter of Leviticus, and I'm just picking out one particular instruction there. In chapter 6 of Leviticus, verses 12 and 13, he said, On this altar, the fire on the altar shall be kept burning. Always a fire on this altar. Don't turn the gas off. <laughs> it's always on. It's always on. Verse 13, he says, a fire shall always burn, be burning. It shall never be put out on this altar. He's giving us a message. This spiritual sacrifice as we are called to offer is continuous, perpetual. Don't stop it. It's not just half an hour on Sunday. Always the fire is burning. Another interesting, very interesting thing we see about this altar 
is that once they follow the instructions and they built the tabernacle, they put the altar in place on the inaugural service. And this is in the ninth chapter of Leviticus. The inaugural service, Aaron the high priest comes uh, with the uh, sacrifice, brings it on the altar. And you know what happens? Leviticus 9.24, the Bible says, fire comes from God in heaven and lights the altar. And that fire is kept burning and burning and burning. But they had to keep bringing the sacrifice. Make sure you keep the fire burning. God provides the fire, but you've got to bring the sacrifice to keep it burning. We bring the sacrifice. The fire is from heaven. But listen, if there is no sacrifice, there is no fire. It goes off. There's a message for us from that Old Testament picture. We are priests unto God. And as long as we keep bringing that sacrifice of prayer, of worship, of intercession, uh, the fire will be there, will be kept burning on the altar. Amen. And God intends for that fire to never be put out. It's a perpetual fire. On the altar. Always on. You travel through time in the Old Testament. And come into the time of King David. You know the story how God's people came into the land of Canaan. They were established there. And uh, they, had, they went through the period of judges. Think about a 400 year period. And then came. They said we want a king. King Saul was the first king. He didn't do too well. And he was replaced by David. Who became king. Over all Israel, David was a worshiper. He knew how to worship God. You read his Psalms, they're always saying, Sing praise to God, give worship to God. That's David. One of the first things he does after he becomes king over all Israel, you read about this in 2 Samuel, the sixth chapter, and also in 1 Chronicles, chapters 15 and 16. David builds what is known as the tabernacle of David, meaning he builds that physical structure that would house the Ark of the Covenant, which is a symbol of God's presence. And then David appoints about 280 singers and 4,000 musicians. That's a huge band. It's it's noisy with five, six people. It's so loud. I mean, imagine if you were attending that service. With 280 singers, 400 musicians. And they had everything. They had harps, cymbals, trumpets blowing. I mean, it was a loud noise. And these people, the priests and the Levites, were appointed to be in the tabernacle continuously. For instance, you just look at this verse in 1 Chronicles 16, and just picking at one verse, verse 4. And he appointed some of the Levites to minister before the ark of the Lord, to commemorate the petition, to thank and to praise the Lord God of Israel. These were appointed. They said, this is your, this all you do. Priests and Levites, 
you be in this temple, in this tabernacle. And there was continuous 24-7 non-stop prayer, praise, and worship going on before the ark of God. That was the tabernacle of David. Expression of his heart to worship God. Continuously. And these were full-time people. So we have pastors. But imagine full-time musicians, full-time trumpet blowers, play, paid by the church. What do you do? I blow the trumpet. <laughs> paid to be there. What do you do? I sing. What do you do? I play the harp. That's my full-time job. To be in the tabernacle, in the house of prayer. And what we see is this. So David, King David had perhaps the, the best reign of all the kings of Israel. Conquered his enemies, established peace in the land and so on. And what we see is that after David's passing away, yes, the people of Israel wandered. The generations that came didn't stay faithful to the Lord for the most part. But what we see is that every king or leader who would be used by God to bring revival to the land of Israel, one of the first things they did was to bring back or reestablish this form of worship. Solomon, Jehoshaphat, Joash, Hezekiah, Josiah, and Ezra and Nehemiah, they were not kings, but they were leaders. All of them, when they wanted to bring revival to the land, what did they do? Bring back this worship. Appoint the priests and the Levites to get into their place and just worship and minister to God. There was revival in the land. About 300 years afterwards, three to 400 years later, comes a prophet. His name is Amos. In Amos chapter 9, verses 11 and 12, the Lord is speaking through this prophet and he says, On that day, looking to a time in the future, God says, I will raise up or bring back the tabernacle of God saying, man, I enjoyed that time so much. I'm going to bring it back. I will bring back the tabernacle of David. And what will happen? I will, I will repair its damages. I will raise up its ruins. I will rebuild it as in the days of old. As it was in the time of David, I'm going to bring it back. And he says, that they may possess the remnant of Edom. Edom in the Bible always refers to the Gentile, unsaved world. And he says then, the Gentiles will be called by my name. So God is saying, look, I will rebuild this tabernacle. I will rebuild this place where there will be people dedicated to worshiping me, petitioning me, praying before me. And when I do that, it will enable my people to possess, inherit the nations. Amos prophesied 
this about 700 years. Go ahead into the future. Traveling into the future. The church is born in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. About 15 years after its birth. In the 15th chapter of the, uh, of, of the book of Acts. There is the first council in Jerusalem. By this time. They have gone out of Jerusalem. They are preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. Peter has gone and preached the gospel to, the Corne to Cornelius and his household. Paul and Barnabas are traveling around the, uh, uh, on their missionary journey preaching to Gentiles. But there is a little concern in the church in Jerusalem saying, what do we do with Gentiles who decide to believe in Jesus? Do we get them to follow Jewish customs? Or do we just tell them believe in Jesus and live the way he told us to live and keep it at that? So there, here is the first council in Jerusalem, meaning the elders, the leaders of the church, gather together. Peter is there. Paul and Barnabas are there. Other elders in Jerusalem are there. They're sitting down together and saying, what do we do now? Because Gentiles are also believing in Jesus. What instructions do we give them? James is the leader of the church in Jerusalem. He stands up there in Acts 15 and he says, you know, brethren, and he's speaking by the Holy Spirit. He's not misquoting scripture. He says, I want to remind you about something. And he goes back to Amos chapter 9, verse 11 and 12. He says, the prophet Amos said, God spoke through Amos saying, I will rebuild the tabernacle of David. And the Gentiles will come seeking the Lord. So James is saying, it's happening right now. This is the tabernacle of David being rebuilt. Now keep in mind that the things God speaks to the nation of Israel, he first fulfills it in a spiritual sense through the church before it's fulfilled in a literal sense to Israel. So there will come a time when the tabernacle or the temple of David is rebuilt literally. But God is first fulfilling it spiritually in the church. And that's what James is referring to. He's saying we, the church, are this tabernacle. God's rebuilding it. As he's raising up the church, he is rebuilding the tabernacle of David. And what will happen? The Gentiles will come to seek after the living Amen. The point I want to make here is this. That we are called to be this tabernacle of David. A people who are offering up these spiritual sacrifices that goes on and on. Without ceasing. Before God. And as we step into that and begin to move into that. We're going to see souls saved like never before. Because that will be the result of the tabernacle of David being raised up on the earth. In Isaiah 56, verses 6 and 7, Isaiah calls God's people a house of prayer. He says, All to the sons of the foreigner who joins themselves to the Lord to serve him and to love the name of the Lord to be his servants. Everyone who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant, 
Even them I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and the sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. Now notice this house of prayer for all nations is in the context of the foreigner, of the Gentile coming to seek God. In that context he says, my house will be called a house of prayer. Jesus repeats this promise from Isaiah in the 21st chapter of Matthew as he goes into the temple and he chases out the money changers and, and he says God's house will be called a house of prayer. We are called to be a house of prayer. If you travel to the throne room of God, so how do I do that? Turn to Revelation chapter 5. And you get inside into the throne room of God. What's happening there? John writes for us in chapter 5 and some other chapters in the book of Revelation what's actually happening in the throne room. I just pick out one verse, verse number 8 there. It says that when he had taken out the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fall down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So in the throne room, what's happening? There are these elders worshiping the Lord with a harp and with a bowl. The harp to praise and glorify and magnify God, the bowl represents the prayers of the saints ascending before the throne. The picture we have is that in the throne room of God, there is continuous praise and there is continuous prayer ascending before God. We are called to be a house of prayer. We are called to be a people who will minister to God with the harp and with the bow. A people who will sing His praises. A people who will raise our prayers before Him continuously. Amen? You know, I know life is busy for all of us. But I want to encourage you and I to be intentional about pressing the pause button on life and saying, I want to pause because I want to minister to the King of glory with my harp and with my bow. He's worthy of it. Amen? We're all busy, I know it. But we are called to be priests to our God. And I do this periodically. I take a day off my week. I set that day aside just to be with God. Spend that day. Maybe six hours. Sometimes eight hours. Just worship, prayer, and word. I do it intentionally. So how do you do it? I'm my own boss, so I can decide. How you do it? So I need to apply for leave. Yeah, follow your company's policy. Apply for leave in advance. Plan it ahead. Get the day off. Just to be a priest unto God. Do it on purpose. You're called to be a priest. Take the day off just to minister to God. Nothing else. No email, no SMS, no phone. Put on silence. So, but uh, people are trying to reach me on the phone. It's okay. God will take care of that. 
you just minister to God. Amen. You're called to be a priest. Now, not all my weeks are like this, but last week was pretty intense. We were down in doing a software de- deployment at a large hospital. Amos was with me. Amos, we worked together. We went there on Monday. Tuesday was, I think we were 12 hours at work. Got back to the hotel. Wednesday was, Wednesday was even longer. I think we were like 13 hours straight at work, maybe 14. And there's a lot of pressure because we were away out of town. We had only time till Friday to finish the deployment. We had to get it done. So Thursday morning I got up. My first thing is, man, I got to get to work. And I said, listen, I'm going to push the pause button on life. I have an hour before I get ready and go go to the hospital. This one hour, I'm going to give to God. So I spent some time in the Word, turned on some worship music, and just worshiped God. Thursday was a long day, 17 hours. 8.30 a.m. right through midnight. Past midnight, got back to the hotel, did more work, slept at 1.30, 17 hours or 16, 17 hours of work straight. It's a long day. Friday was also a good day. But the point I want to get across to you is, you know what, we're all busy, but you've got to press the pause button intentionally and say, I'm a priest unto God. I'm not too busy to pause to worship my Creator. The world can wait when I do that. Amen. We're called to be a house of prayer. Worshipping him. One of the things I'm really excited about is when you look back in church history and you see there have been movements of prayer, prayer movements throughout church history and, and the amazing things that have come out of that. I'll just mention a few, some of which you may be familiar with. In 480, there was a man named, or a monk named Alexander Achimetis. If I pronounced his last name wrong, I'll sort it out in heaven with him. But, <laughs> but he got three to 400 monks together into a monastery. And he challenged them and said, you know, we're going to practice what Paul told us, that we're going to pray without ceasing. So these 400 monks were called the sleepless ones. They they gave themselves the continuous prayer and worship. 1727 is historical. A man named Count Zinzendorf together with a group of less than 50 people. They were having a small meeting. And the Holy Spirit just moved upon them in such a special way that what began as a service, a meeting, continued nonstop for 100 years. It was not birthed by somebody's planning or design. The Holy Spirit just moved on them. They just they just felt God is moving. They just continued worshiping, worshiping. People would take a break, come back. The worship would just continue nonstop. And that prayer meeting went nonstop for 100 years. 
They just keep on going, coming, taking turns. Just the prayer worship went on. Out of that prayer movement came the Moravian missionaries who traveled around the world. And they had such an impact that great men like William Carey and John Wesley were first influenced by these people. And they went on to do great things for God in the history of the church. 1973, Yonggi Cho in Seoul, Korea, South Korea, you know, he dedicated a place called the Prayer Mountain just for people to be there continuously in prayer. I was reported that in a given year, there would be about a million people would have spent time in prayer at the prayer mountain. See the result, the outcome of that? The largest church in history, over close to 800,000 people. Many other churches in Korea, it's just common. What's your church attendance? 40,000, 50,000. Just common. What births something like that? People in prayer. September 19th, 1999, Kansas City. Mike Bickle and the International House of Prayer. Now, Mike Bickle was already ministering for several years prior to that. But they started a, a prayer meeting that, just, that has been going on now till today. I think it's 15 years now. And they have dedicated what they call as prayer missionaries. People have just given themselves to prayer. They raise their own support and they serve in this house of prayer. They're rostered two hours each. People come and worship. And you would have seen some of it on God TV as well. They come in there, spend two hours, just worship. Just worship. Prayer. And it's been going on for 15 years. Non-stop. What's the result? I hope Kansas City is now a missions base. It's not just a church, but a missions base. People are just going out all over the world. Many of the houses of prayer are being raised up around the world as God's people are responding to this call to be a house of prayer. To make sure that the fire on the altar never goes off. To make sure that we fulfill our call to be priests of God. Day and night, the Bible calls us to worship God. And I'm excited because I remember back in 2008, some of you were here. The year of outpouring, I think the beginning we had maybe 50 days or so of continuous daily gathering every evening for worship and prayer. We went, I think, 54 days, first time straight. Then we did another 20-odd days, second time. That's that one year. What I'm excited about is when we did it that, then in 2008, we had some people who were very passionate about just spending extended time in God's presence. But today, I'm seeing so many more young people willing to spend extended time in the presence of God. That's exciting. 
They just want to come and worship. They just want to come and be in God's presence. Doesn't matter if it's an hour. Doesn't matter if it's two hours. Doesn't matter if it's three hours. They want to be there. A momentum is being built up in our hearts. Something is happening. In 2010, we wanted to establish our own house of prayer. We didn't succeed then. But I believe God's leading us into a time and a place when we will have the right people and, and we will be able to have our own house of prayer where we will continuously there will be people worshiping God nonstop, 24-7. And you can go in there anytime, just worship, spend some time in worship, just seeking God. And God says, when I rebuild this tabernacle of David, the Gentiles will come. People will come to seek the true and living God. Amen. This morning, I just want to challenge you and I that we are called to be a house of prayer. And we believe that ministry is best done when our lives are rooted in prayer, worship, and an intimacy with God. That's when real ministry happens. Amen. We do plan. We do organize. All that's good. But we can't forget that we are first called to be priests unto our God. I remember as a young boy in school, I would keep my Saturdays aside. Every Saturday, I'd go to Methodist Church, Richmond Town, lock myself in the library at the back, spend that day with God. That was my routine. I want to seek God. I want to challenge you now. We can do it. As the Holy Spirit moves on you, yield to the promptings. Say, yes, Lord, I'll give myself, I'll give this half an hour, I'll give this hour, I'll give this two hours just to be in your presence because I'm called to be a priest, to offer up spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And as we begin to respond and become that community that's constantly worshiping God, what will happen? He said, the Gentiles will come. People will be drawn to the living God. Would you this morning just say, Lord, I will yield myself to be a priest unto God. I know life's busy. We've all got things to do. We've got responsibilities. But we also have a calling given to us by the maker of heaven and earth. He looks to his people and says, you are my special treasure. I've called you to be a royal priesthood. I've called you to be a holy priesthood. I've called you to be kings and priests. An assignment given to us by the king of glory. To be priests unto our God. To be a house of prayer and worship. That's the church. A people are responding to the call of worshiping their maker. Of petitioning him. Standing before him in their priestly ministry. We trust that this message was a blessing to you. We'd love to hear from you. You can email us at contact at apcwo.org 
Also, visit our website www.apcwo.org for additional resources. Thank you for listening and God bless you.